This is the podcast for Indelible, the documentary in progress for the week of October 12th, 2016. Today I was finally able to review the FBI documents sent two weeks ago, the third installment. All but 68 pages were again copies and exhibits related to the July 1979 riot at Walla Walla. There was no new information. Oh, except one odd thing. They included Harp's medical record from Walla Walla General Hospital, where he was taken after his rape that night. I found it odd that they would include this, almost entirely unredacted, while at the same time stating that they were exempting many pages because of violations of privacy or potential violations of privacy regarding medical records. But yet, there it was. The other documents included some documents about the alleged quote-unquote attempted robbery by telephone of a bank in the university district by Harp and his wife, Jamie, the day of the sniper shooting. Most of the news reports about Harp state without hesitation that Harp was involved in this attempted robbery. I've questioned his involvement repeatedly because just the idea of it seems out of character for Harp as he was not inclined to overtly clumsy or stupid actions, and charges were never brought against either of them. Well, in the documents, one showed that Jamie, his wife at the time, described how she came up with the idea from a TV show. So, it was not Harp's idea, but it's also odd she came up with it, having two significant others who later were involved in intelligence positions, one fairly high up and the other at Lockheed Martin. Yet she did. And interestingly, the FBI asked for Harp's previous criminal file and asked that the brown paper bag that they had as evidence for that robbery to be checked for Harp's fingerprints. Now this request was made before they identified any association between the attempted robbery and he and his wife. They were just looking for suspects. And yet, they identified him. This was before the rape charges as well, and it was prior to him being charged with the sniper crime. The crime lab came back, stating his fingerprints were not a match to those on the brown bag they had in evidence. But still, Later, the police conveyed to the press and the court that Harp was involved in this robbery attempt and that it was the basis for his motivation for the sniper crime. What? (laughs) How twisted can this get? Also, the man who called in the robbery at the bank was reported to have a distinctive baritone voice. This was not Harp. Later, the FBI wrote a letter transferring the case to another agent as it had the same M.O. as this other agent's case, unrelated to Harp. But still, the newspapers and courts described this and that it was, in fact, 
the motivation for the sniper shooting. His lawyer said there was no factual evidence of Harp's location or actions that day. The rifle crudely identified in the sniper shooting was purchased by an acquaintance of Harp's in Snohomish County a month prior to the sniper shooting. This was also in the documents. This man had a history of drug priors and was wanted on several charges. He never before had an interest in guns, but somehow he goes up to the same place, Snohomish County, and buys a rifle same county where Harp would be detained later as a rapist a couple of months later, even though his tattoos did not match the victim's statements. It's the same county that held him in jail until he was charged with the sniper shooting. Now neither the man that bought the gun or Harp lived in Snohomish County. Harp at the time lived on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. The gun buyer lived in Renton. But the man who picked up Harp for the rape charges, who also said he could see Harp's tattoos as he sped by in his car, I think he was a marshal for the um, first Snohomish County. He lived and worked in Snohomish County. He was also trained by the FBI and in 2010, he was nominated by Patty Murray and appointed by President Obama as a U.S. Marshal, citing Harp's arrest decades earlier as one of the reasons he deserved to be appointed. The man who bought the rifle just decided to offer it up to Harp, but Harp never actually paid for it and the man could not identify the gun used in the shooting as this gun. He said he didn't have the serial numbers, but yet it was a slam-dunk conviction. To convict Harp of the sniper shooting, the prosecution used the testimony of a man named Klaproth. That's his last name. He was placed in the cell with Harp, after Harp was held for the rape charges in Snohomish County. Klaproth took notes from his alleged interactions with Harp and gave them to police on a regular basis. But there was quite a bit of doubt by Harp and his attorney as to the accuracy of these notes. Then, over a weekend during the trial, Harp's attorney obtained some information about Klaproth, and she wanted to recall him as a witness. Apparently, he had been a bodyguard for one of the notorious leaders of the American Nazi Party, William Lincoln Rockwell, at the time of his assassination. He had been a police witness in that case. It appears Klaproth was brought into Harp's cell by police in Snohomish with a specific agenda and clearly he produced false documents and this was encouraged 
and used by the police and the courts to convict Harp. In another interesting few pages, the juror pool to be chosen for Harp's case was composed of 59 people. The judge carried out an unusual practice and had each potential juror interviewed in a private room with the two attorneys, the prosecutor and the defense attorney, who choose each uh, witness, each uh, juror. But they were placed in a private room by the judge, out of earshot from the other jurors. I don't even think this is legal. It was also stated that prior to the jurors being interviewed, they were asked who knew about the sniper case, and all 59 raised their hands. Harp's mother died in May 1973, the month of the sniper shooting, and he was not notified until three days after her death. This is interesting as it reminds me of John Bosch not being notified of his son's murder for three years and then when he was, it was expected by police in their notes that he would react with violence, but he didn't. It makes me wonder if the FBI or other law enforcement were aware of his mother of Carl's mother's death and hoped also to spark a response in Harp. And uh, clearly they were aware because it was in these FBI documents. In news articles, Harp's personality was distorted to match the profile the police wished to convey to the public. Quote-unquote, he was a loner. Yet a witness, Lydia Smith, who was a bartender at the Central Tavern in Pioneer Square at the time in Seattle, testified that she had been to parties with Harp and his wife, and Harp had been the life of the party. Her testimony, however, was excluded. There was also a very bizarre redaction. The FBI requested the marriage records of Jamie Harloff and Carl Harp, who were married in Nevada in February 1973. The FBI redacted her name and the sent and the sentence that said they were married. Why? This is public information. Yet in news articles for Harp's case, there were multiple errors about his marriages. This release also contained many news articles. Only one was stamped, however. It was one from the Seattle Times with all sorts of errors about Harp and his case. What was it stamped? Do not destroy historical significance. That was the perfect ending to this third set of documents. Clearly someone at the FBI has a sense of humor. One thing did help me understand the article for the weekly on my effort in Harp's case written last February. It cutely had the title, Snipe. S-N-I-P-E-D. Look up the second meaning of that word in the dictionary. The article put forth all sorts of statements about my father's reasons for investigating Harp that were baffling to me. I really wondered where they came from. 
and it also described Harp's childhood in an inaccurate way. But I think I understand how this happened now. It's very similar to the information in these FBI documents I received today, especially the news articles they included. So it's possible this was a composition, the article in the weekly, was a composition of sorts based on found information supplied by the FBI. The FBI articles, the news articles in the FBI documents were faulty and informed by the police and court's agenda at the time. But still, I mean, any rudimentary search within easily available, available documents shows they were inaccurate. My father edited one article that was in there that described Harp as he was sentenced for some of his crimes. Harp said, quote unquote, I did not and would never commit this crime. I would have tried to stop it. He said that about the sniper crime. He said this with emotion and was about to break down emotionally, my father wrote. And then Harp added, I am a good man. Harp's mistake was being from a poor, unstable family. He was useful fodder. He complied with mercenary training and with those who presented themselves as authorities to him as a teen. What he didn't know is that this interaction and exposure to those involved in mercenary fighting in Vietnam and Guatemala had deep connections and dark practices. Practices which led back to the U.S. government. Practices that used vulnerable young males like Harp for whatever they need to use them for and still likely do so today. In Harp's case, he was never able to be free from this past. And when he was near to freedom, he was murdered. It is a corrupt authority that would use and exploit someone like Harp and distort his history for their own uses. And it is a corrupt media that would be the mouthpiece for such exploitation.